going to be wrapping up our series in Ecclesiastes. So uh, if you have a Bible, you can open it up to Ecclesiastes, which is right in the middle. It's Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of the black Bibles you'll see under the chairs if you want to follow along with us there. And it can be found around page 558, 559. It's the book of Ecclesiastes. It's Old Testament wisdom literature. So it's in this section here, a lot of wisdom literature and poetry. And one of the great themes we've seen throughout Ecclesiastes is that life is very short. Uh, It's translated differently in all the different versions, futility or vanity or meaninglessness, but it's this word for vapor or mist. Uh, And what we've seen is even though the different translations will translate that differently, you can see a kind of a clarity in the way Hebrew poetry is written. It's called parallelism. So it says um, life is a vapor or mist or futility, and then it says a chasing after the wind. So it gives you that kind of second parallel statement that helps clarify it for you, no matter what translation you're using. And so we see that that life is a mix of good and bad. We've seen that throughout Ecclesiastes. There's death, there's good things, there's fun, there's joy. And he says we should rejoice in the moments that we have, knowing that life really is not fair. Life is not fair. Uh, Life is hard. There's death and disease and brokenness, but we shouldn't allow the painful things in life to to drive us from God or drive us from the joy that God provides. And so in this final conclusion, we are being challenged to trust God's voice. The big summary statement is in verse 13 that says, the end of the matter is this, fear God and keep his commandments. So pay attention to what God has to say and do what he says, right? Pay attention to him, fear him, love him, honor him. Fear in the ancient wisdom is not the kind of fear where you're running away from something terrified but it's more like you see that thing or that being, God himself, as more valuable, as more awesome, as more weighty than anything else. It's a, it's a respect kind of fear. I remember when I was parenting young children. My kids are all older now. My, my baby is a senior in high school. My older ones are out of the house. And when I was parenting younger children, you often give verbal instructions. They need to hear your voice and do what you say, Right? And often they would do what I said, but there would be times when they would not do what they said. Anybody here have kids? You know, you know how that works, right? Um, and so sometimes they wouldn't do what you say, but sometimes they wouldn't do what you said because they didn't hear you. And they'd say, I didn't hear you, right? You're following up with them. They're like, I, d- I didn't hear you. And, and in the circumstances, sometimes you're like, okay, I know the water was running or the dishwasher was on or whatever. So you'd repeat the instructions and, and you'd move forward. But sometimes you'd find that your child might get in a habit of not hearing you. Have, have you ever seen that happen? Because that started to happen again and again. I didn't hear you. I didn't hear you. Finally, it comes to a point where you have to say, your job is to hear my voice. That's your job, right? Your job is to pay attention to my voice. Your job is to respect my voice. Your job is to value my voice and what I have to say. I'm here because I love you and I want to take care of you. This is not some ego trip, right? I want to keep you from getting hurt. I want to help you to grow and to thrive. We see a very similar dynamic in the scripture. God says, you you need to pay attention to my voice. There are going to be a lot of competing voices. There are going to be noise. There's going to be chatter. There are going to be other things that draw you away, but you need to hear my voice. Attune yourself to what I have to say. Pay attention to my voice. We need to trust him, trust his voice. We see this summarized in verses 8 through 14. Again, I'm reading a different translation than what the Pew Bibles are. So if, that, if you're new and you're just grabbing that, it's, some of the words are slightly different, but you'll kind of get the gist of it. Uh, it's mostly the same. So in verse 8, he's kind of finishing the previous section in verse 8, and he says, absolute futility or vanity, says the teacher or preacher, everything is futile. 
So this is that word I was talking about, vapor, mist. He's saying, it's all vapor. It's all mist. Now, verse 9. In addition to the teacher being a wise man, he constantly taught the people knowledge. He weighed, explored, and arranged many proverbs. The teacher sought to find delightful sayings and write words of truth accurately. The sayings of the wise are like cattle prods, and those from masters of collections are like firmly embedded nails. The sayings are given by one shepherd. But beyond these, my son, be warned. There is no end to the making of many books, and much study wearies the body. When all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this. Fear God and keep his commands, because this is for all humanity. For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. So in the end, we've got to pay attention to what God has to say. We've got to listen to his voice. We have to respect him, fear him, and do what he says. Let me pray for us and ask God to help us understand. God, we pray that you would teach us, that you would help us understand, uh, help us to hear your voice speaking to us through your word. We believe that you still speak, um, but we often act like we don't. So we pray your spirit would meet us here, give us open ears, open hearts, that we would see you, that we would consider you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we move through the text, there are some kind of main ideas of what God's voice is like that I think the text uh, unpacks for us. So we want to trust his voice. We want to pay attention to his voice. And the first thing that we'll see is that God's voice delights. There's that word delight. As the uh, teacher was collecting the sayings, he made sure that he brought out the delight of what God's direction is for us. And then secondly, we'll look at the idea that God's voice shepherds us. There's a leadership aspect there. It redirects us. It doesn't just let us do whatever we want, but it says, no, don't go there. Go here. There's a shepherding task in God's voice, and God's word. And then finally, we'll see that God's voice judges. That'll be the hardest one for us. Our culture is kind of in a place where judgment is a scary word, so we'll deal, deal with that when we get to it. But let's start with this first point, that God's voice delights. God's voice delights us. Look at verse 9. In verse 9, he says, in addition to the teacher, preacher being a wise man or a sage, um, this is like an office in the Old Testament uh, people. It's, it's like being a priest or a prophet. A sage would be someone who speaks wise words, someone who instructs and teaches. Uh, and Solomon was a king. King David was a king. They spoke wise words. A king should be wise. A king should be a sage, but that's not always the case, right? Those of us who have any leadership responsibility. We should be wise, but we don't always lead that way. Well, here he's saying the teacher was wise. He led that way. He spoke wisdom. It says he constantly taught the people knowledge. He weighed, explored, and arranged many proverbs. This is really interesting for those that, that study the ancient books, um, people that can read this stuff in like, you know, Mesopotamia and Akkadian language, all these different languages and compare the Egyptian texts with the biblical texts, what they see is that when Solomon weighed and explored and discovered Proverbs, he stole a lot of Proverbs from other cultures. Uh, and the book of Proverbs is very clear about that. Stole is probably too harsh of a word, right? But the, the book of Proverbs and the book of Ecclesiastes here are very clear. He, he took other people's Proverbs and said, this is a good one. This is a bad one. We'll leave that one out. Here, here's a good one. This one's true. This agrees with God's word. Here's another one. I don't think that's true. We'll leave that one out of my collection. So he collected sayings and sifted them and weighed them and calculated. That's kind of like an everyday job for us, right? You may not be publishing a book of Proverbs, but 
we just have to live our life that way. We hear different ideas, and we have to filter that through God's word and say, is this true? Does this agree with God's word, or does it not agree with God's word? And so there's a pattern for us there that I think is helpful. We can see when we read the Proverbs, when we read Ecclesiastes, that often those who are speaking God's word or speaking the truth of God's word will agree with a lot of stuff that's out there, right? There's this thing that theologians say that you can divide the revelation of God or, or the voice of God into two categories. There's the general voice, the general revelation, and then special revelation. So we would say God's word is his special revelation, and Hebrews says, uh, we heard God's voice through all these different words, and in these last days, God speaks most clearly through his son. And so God's son, Jesus, is the, the specialist of his special revelation, right? So we would say we've got the uh, containment here, the recordings, the writings of God's word all in one place, and this is his special revelation. The way Calvin talked about it is that you can see um, truth in the world through God's general revelation, but sometimes we don't see clearly because of the sin in our heart. And so he described the special revelation as like glasses that we put on. As I'm getting older now, I have to wear glasses often to read. I keep buying Bibles with larger prints. So I don't have to wear glasses when I preach because it confuses me. But when I'm sitting at home and I've got a book with small print, I have to put on reading glasses now. Well, Calvin talked about this was the difference between special and general revelation. We can all walk out the door and just see that God is. God made the world. God, like there's just obvious things we can all see. Romans 1 is really clear about that. We know that God exists. And if you don't know that, the Bible says you're actually denying something that deep down you know. And so that's general revelation. And then we put on the glasses. We put on the reading glasses of special revelation. And then we can see even more clearly. We can understand even better what God is trying to teach us. And so here we see that that's kind of the process of what Solomon was doing when he was collecting these sayings. And I want to now zero in on this idea of delight. God's word should be a delight. Should it be true? Yes, of course. It's God's word. It is true. And we're going to get to the kind of the, the harder side of these truths as we move through our points. But here, I want us to really make sure we don't miss that God's word is a delight. Look here at verse 10. The teacher sought to find delightful sayings and write words of truth accurately. And so that's, again, translated in different ways. He wrote words of truth uprightly, accurately, righteously. Um, he was trying to write true things. In the Hebrew, there's a parallelism there of they were... Delight words and true words, and those aren't two different things. They go together. They're two different aspects of God's word. So I think we're, we're better typically at saying, yeah, we know God's word is truth, and it's something we can rely on, and as I said, we'll get into the kind of harsher side of that, the, how that challenges us and pushes us here in the next couple of points, but, but I just want you to stop and think, do you recognize that God's word is a delight? Is God's word sweet to you? Um, Psalm 119 is the longest chapter in the Bible, and it just goes on and on about how uh, the author loves God's word, and it's a delight, and it's sweet, and it's wonderful. I have to confess I don't, I don't always feel that way. I think when I'm walking in the spirit, when I have like my gospel eyes on and my gospel heart right, where I'm really trusting that God's good and he loves me, then God's word is sweet. When I don't have that gospel perspective, I'm kind of like, hey, I, I want to be in charge of me. I don't want someone telling me what to do. My question for you is, do you see God's word, his voice to you as sweet, or do you see it as a bother? Do you see it as delightful, or do you see it as something that gets in the way? I, I grabbed a picture of a mother comforting a child to just kind of give you this 
vision, this picture of God's voice being something soothing. Do you see God's voice as something soothing? You can go back to the, to the words now. His voice delights us. His voice is something that should be sweet to us. As Psalm 19 says, it's wonderful. Um, it's beautiful. I found this really helpful quote from David Gibson. He said, you know your creator when you realize that the words he speaks are meant to make you smile. Do you know God in that way? Now, again, does God have tough things to say to us sometimes? Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. Okay, so hold on. I know we've got the, like, we've got the God's words are delightful people, probably by temperament, and we've got the God's words are hard and true and to the point, right? I think by temperament, we lean one way or the other. So just here, let's not miss God's word is meant to be a delight. We'll get to the hard truth in a minute. Think about it in your own life. Which side do you lean in your own communication style? Are you more of like a nurturing, kind, comforting, soothing, encouraging person? Or are you like a to-the-point, no-bull, tell-it-like-it-is kind of person? Which, which one are you? Recognize that God is both, <laughs> right? We, we often are only one side of that, and we, we fail to see the other side. We can't miss that God's word is to be a delight. And so think about it this way. Number one, do you hear God's word that way? Number two, do you communicate who God is in that way? When people have an interaction with you about who you think God is and what you believe and what you think his word has to teach, do they walk away thinking, man, that's, that's pretty awesome. One way to say that would be, that's good news. That, that's what the, the word gospel means, good news. Do people walk away from an interaction with you thinking, wow, that, that whole thing about God and he loves us and he wants, he wants to see life and health, it, that's, that sounds really good. God forgives us for our sins. God's merciful. God's comforting. That, that's good news. Do people see that in the words that you speak? Proverbs uh, gives us some perspective on this. On the both sides, I'd, I'd encourage you to read Proverbs too. So Proverbs is kind of a collection of just the short sayings. Ecclesiastes is more of a complex argument, right? But they're both wisdom books. Both uh, have Solomon's fingerprints all over it. Um, and Proverbs twelve twenty five says this, anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. So do you have friends that are full of anxiousness, fear, anger, depression, and you can speak Good words of truth, good words, delightful words, sweet words that can, can make them glad. Are you able to do that? I believe if we grow in wisdom, if we learn better to understand who God is and what his word has to say, we'll, we'll be able to speak more to that aspect of his character, that he is a delight. And then Proverbs 27, 6 says this, faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. So for those of us that tend to speak kind words more than hard words, I'm actually one of those kind of people, right? So uh, expository preaching forces me to say hard things that I, I would otherwise avoid, right? So some of you would think, oh, but you got to be careful. You don't want to be too delightful, right? You don't want to be too kind. You don't want to be too sweet with your words. And, and Proverbs would agree with you that. As faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Yeah, sometimes someone that's always saying nice things, they're just trying to flatter you, right? You don't know if you can really trust that. There are there are times to say hard things, and that's what we'll, we'll transition into now. So before we move on, do you get the delight part? Do you get the sweet part? Do you see that God's word is kind and sweet and gracious? He's a forgiving God. He's a loving God. He's the God that delights in you. As Zephaniah 3.17 says, he rejoices over you with song. He calms you 
in his love. Do you see God that way? So David Gibson, I quoted earlier, you, you know your creator when you realize that the words he speaks are meant to make you smile. And then Gibson goes on and he says, but another way to know that you know God is when what he says also makes you wince. There's both sides, right? There's both sides. We see that in Proverbs. We see that in Ecclesiastes. God's word also sometimes can make us wince. So the way I said this is God's word, uh, his voice shepherds us. So in the next section, verses 11 and 12, we'll say that God's voice shepherds. Verse 11 says, the sayings of the wise are like cattle prods. You know what a cattle prod is? It's like a sharp stick, right? It's like you're, you're poking a big animal with a thick leathery hide, so I don't think you're hurting the cow too much when you do that. But there is a little pain, there's a little wince, and you're directing them through a little measured pain. And he's saying God's word can be like that. It can be this measured pain that pokes you, that jabs you, that, that redirects you. And then he goes on and says, and those from masters of collections are like firmly embedded nails. Nails, of course, people don't get nailed, right? But when you put nails into something, like say you're nailing together a table, um, there's pain there, right? There's that poke, there's that prod concept, but it also adds stability, right? It, it helps hold something together. It helps to make something firm. And so God's word can, can be a little painful. It can make us wince. And he says, the sayings are given by one shepherd, they come from one shepherd. So there's this unifying voice in God's word. We would say we've got this collection of books from all these different authors, from all these different countries and several different languages, um, and they all have one unified theme. They all speak to one shepherd. Jesus says in John chapter 10 that he is the good shepherd. Throughout the Old Testament, God uh, communicates that he is the, the great shepherd of Israel, right? So there's this image of God being a shepherd who directs us. And sheep are really dumb. I don't know if you've studied sheep or worked with sheep much. I know we've got, I think, someone here that works with sheep. I can make sure I'm, I'm fact-checking this afterwards. But sheep, I hear, are very dumb. They're not very smart, and they need the shepherd to direct them, right, to make sure they're eating what they need to eat and staying out of trouble and not wandering off and falling off cliffs and doing dumb things. They need to be directed. And we're, we're a little bit like that spiritually speaking, Right? Uh, physically speaking, we, we can see ourselves as way smarter than sheep and dumb animals, but spiritually, we're like sheep. We wander, we eat the wrong things, we pursue the wrong things, right? We satisfy ourselves with things that spiritually are not good for us, that can poison us. And we need to be redirected by this good shepherd, this God who really, who really loves us, who takes us in the right direction. I have a picture of um, spurs. Spurs are kind of like a cattle prod when someone rides horses. I thought this would be very culturally relevant because we have a lot of soldiers that have spurs, right? How many of you are in the, the cavalry? Some of you? Okay, a few of you. Not that many, so forget that. Not culturally relevant. <laughs> but spurs are another image of that. There's a lot of different images you can think of. Uh, you can go on to the next one. But there are different images of what it takes to cause maybe a little bit of pain, but that pain is to direct, right? To direct an animal. And this is just a total sidebar, but I want us to think about the fact of where we are in cultural history we're in a place in cultural history uh, where we tend to want to think that authority should only delight and never cause pain or redirection, okay? And I just want to challenge you to consider that as like an old fuddy-duddy who's raised my children now. Um, if you're going to parent kids and you're going to prevent them from becoming axe murderers, you're going to have to make them uncomfortable, okay? You're going to have to redirect them. You're going to have to sometimes cause discomfort and pain in their lives. Now, you're doing that for love, right? You don't want to abuse them. You don't want to hurt them long term. You know, you don't want to injure them. 
But just the fact that you're in charge, frankly, that causes great emotional pain to any child, okay? <laughs> just the fact that you're an authority. There's emotional pain there. And so I think sometimes we're, we're kind of way on this other perspective and, and trying to make sure we're not abusive and we're not hurting kids that we've swung way to this hard principle of a child should never be uncomfortable. That's, like, that's not possible in this universe, right? That's not the universe we live in. So what if you were a loving parent who shepherded your children and sometimes there was pain, sometimes there was discomfort, sometimes there was redirection, but that was all filtered through your love and you were using that to direct them in the right direction, to help them to grow, to help them to learn that this is dangerous. I've said many times people talk about um, using physical discipline and, and I would say, you know, I'm, I'm perfectly happy for my little kids to have some physical pain if it means they don't get run over in the street by a truck, right? Like that to me is a fair trade-off. I'd rather them have long-term joy. I'm okay with them enduring a little short-term discomfort. And so that's just something to think. This isn't really about parenting, but I just want you to think about that. Just think about the cultural soup we're in right now. We're, we're in that place where it's like, no, a child should never be uncomfortable. A child should never cry. A child should always be happy. Well, that's not, that's not possible in this universe. That's, that's not the way this, this universe works. It's a world of, of difficulty and pain. And for a child to really be strong, they're going to have to be directed in that process. So as we think about God's voice shepherding us and leading us, then he comes to 12.12 and he says, beyond these words, my son, be warned. There is no end to the making of many books and much study wearies the body. So if you're a student, you should amen that, right? There's like no end. There's no end to the books. There's always more to read. Even if you're not a reader, there's always more to, to listen to, right? Even if uh, you don't read magazines or listen to lectures or read books, th they're just always another friend's piece of advice, right? There's always like some other opinion. And so think about that. There are all these different competing voices. There's no end to them. What he's calling us to is filter these voices through God's word, through the one shepherd that loves you. Do you have a bottom line? Do you have a bottom line that, where you can say, okay, this is how I know what truth is? Or are you just kind of running off your own cultural standards, your own gut, your own instinct? Okay, I don't, I don't know. This seems true. That seems true. I'm not sure what works. I would recommend growing in your understanding of God's word so you can have a bottom line. Pastor I love talks about uh, resisting God's word and how when you do that based on your own cultural standards, your own kind of thoughts intuitively of what's right and what's wrong. He says it's kind of like wanting God to be a Stepford wife. You ever seen that movie or read those books? Stepford Wives was this weird kind of sci-fi idea of these men that like program these robot wives to do whatever they say. And I know a lot of you are like, well, sounds, sounds okay, right? Like sounds great. And trust me, it, it wouldn't be great. Like a few days, maybe that'd be cool. But then after that, it would not be great, right? Having someone that always agrees with you he says that's no real relationship, but that's what we so often want to do to the Bible. We want to say, okay, I will only listen to the parts that I already agree with. I won't ever let it challenge me. I won't ever let it redirect me. I won't ever let it change my mind. I won't ever let it hurt my feelings. This book has to just agree. It's going to be a Stepford Wife book or a Stepford Wife God, right? I'm just going to program it to agree with me. It's really good to have someone somewhere that can challenge you. We need to have some, some sense of humility. Um, the way Franz Kafka, so he's a short story writer, 
uh, read this book, Metamorphosis, you know, it was terrible in high school. Um, but anyway, great intellectual, and he says this just about writing in general. He says, a book must be an axe for the frozen sea inside us. A book must be an axe for the frozen sea inside us. I'm afraid we're getting to a, a point in our culture where we see books, we see religion even as the whole purpose is just to affirm and agree with me and make me feel better about myself. Kafka says, no, you want a, a book to shake you up. And I would say, definitely God's word. You want God's word to shake you up, to challenge you. Do you allow God's word to challenge you, to change your mind? Do you pay attention to what it has to say? When you've got all these voices in the world, do you use God's word to sift what's true and what's not true? Or are you just using your own guts, your own instinct to decide what to believe and what not to believe? Okay, one final quote, and then we'll move on to the last point. And this final quote is from Marilyn Robinson, another author. She's actually a, a Christian author, and so she comes to the Bible with more of a perspective of love and appreciation of the Bible. And she says this, I, I do not understand the Bible. By grace, though, of my abiding ignorance, it is always new to me. I'm never not instructed. So here she's saying, and she's a brilliant woman, a professor and a writer who's well-known and a genius, and she's saying, but I, I don't really fully understand it. I always come to it ready to learn. Do, do you have that posture, that, that posture of humility saying, I, I always have something to learn. I always have more to be encouraged by, by the grace of my abiding ignorance. Hear that. This is a genius, brilliant woman saying, by the grace of my ongoing abiding ignorance, it's always new to me. I am never not instructed. We should come to the Bible looking for it to, to redirect us. Sometimes it's going to make us wince. Sometimes it's going to feel like a cattle prod, like it's going to really poke us, right? Like it's meddling in our life. It's asking us to do new things. I would encourage you to listen. Consider reevaluating your life. Now, to be clear, sometimes we read a verse and we feel like it's telling us to turn our life upside down, and you might be misunderstanding it, right? So you don't necessarily read a verse, go out, change your life. I mean, you pray about it. You consider it. You make sure you actually understand what it's saying. You see if there are other scriptures that support that, right? But then if you've got that, that support, if this, if this is really what God is saying to you, if you've really understood his voice, then you need to pay attention. Then, then you need to do what he says. So the last section, this is the hardest one, God's voice judges. Look at this in verse 13 and 14. This is the hardest for us just because where we are in culture, we don't, we don't like the word judgment. We don't like the word judge. Uh, we have kind of a how dare you posture, right? If anyone says anything that disagrees with you, how dare you? You can't judge me, right? We're quick to go there as a culture, um, but God, the God of all the universe, if anyone can judge us, he can. And it says here in verse 13, when all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this, fear God and keep his commands. This is for all of humanity. For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. So God is the ultimate judge. So the author here is saying, we've heard everything. Life is short. There are good days, there are bad days. Uh, it's not something you can hold on to. It's like wind, it's like vapor. But here, here's the end, right? The, the only thing that really matters, fear God and do what he says. Or respect God, pay attention to God. See, what God has to say is more valuable than anything else. Honor him, love him, and do what he says. The way Jesus summarizes this kind of summary of the whole Bible, Jesus says it this way, love God and love other people. As you study the scripture and you understand what his commandments are all about, you'll see more and more as Jesus taught that, you know what, his commandments are ways 
that instruct us to love God and love other people. So Jesus says, love God, love other people. Solomon says, fear God, do what he says. I would say, trust God and do what he asks you to do. Trust his voice. Are you paying attention to his voice? And then he ends with, you know, in the end, he's, there's, there will be a judgment. There will be a judgment. That's a hard reality for us, but I think the reality of judgment is what makes the gospel sweet. If you don't think you've ever done anything wrong, if you don't think anybody ever does anything wrong, then none of us need God's grace. None of us need forgiveness. What frames the idea of God being a gracious God who gives to us what we don't deserve is that we deserve judgment. And so I know, again, I know for some of you, you're like, but this is crazy. My culture has taught me that judgment's the worst thing in the world. I I know that. Judgment is bad if you deserve judgment. But grace is sweeter. So the testimony of the Bible is that all human beings deserve judgment. None of us have really loved each other the way that we should. None of us have even lived up to our own standards. Francis Schaeffer was a Christian teacher from years ago. He died in the 80s. And he used this illustration of a recording device being around your neck. He said tape recorder. Anybody know what a tape recorder is? Okay, some of you, I have a picture here of a tape recorder. I used to love, like, doing little talk shows and comedy routines on that when I was a little kid. Um, but he said, if you carry this tape recorder, or you could say, like, a, an iPhone or a Samsung with, you know, that's recording your voice. So you carry this thing around. You can take it off the picture. We don't have to stare at that historical artifact. Um, Schaefer says this, if every little baby that was ever born anywhere in the world had a tape recorder hung about its neck, and if this tape recorder only recorded the moral judgments with which this child has, which this child has made as he grew, and the moral judgments that he used to bind other men, the moral precepts might be much lower than the biblical law, but they would still be moral judgments. Okay, what he's saying is, Say you put this recording device, and it only records moral statements, only moral statements. He says, you know, in the end, they might be a lower standard than God's law, but there would still be moral statements. We all make moral statements. You should do this. You should never do that, right? All people make those statements. I can't believe so-and-so. Oh, that's terrible, right? That's just, our lives are filled with these statements. And he's saying, what if, what if you just recorded your own personal moral law, your own personal moral statements? He says, eventually each person comes to that great moment when he stands before God as judge. Suppose then that God simply touched the tape recorder button and each man heard played out in his own words all those statements by which he had bound other men in moral judgment. He could hear it going on for years, he says. Thousands and thousands of moral judgments made against other men. Not aesthetic judgments, but moral judgments. Then God would simply say to the man, though he had never heard the Bible, now where do you stand in light of your own moral judgments? Pretty clear. We know that none of us even live up to our own, our own moral standards. We all deserve judgment. Whether you're using God's law to calculate your standards or you're using your own standards, none of us measure up. And the good news of the gospel is that God judged Jesus in your place and in my place. So the story of the cross is that Jesus was this once and for all sacrifice. We're we're all going to die. We're all going to face judgment. Jesus died and faced judgment for all of us. So we're told that our sins were nailed on the cross with him, that he died with our sins. We died with him. We were judged in Christ and that Christ rose from the dead, proving that he conquered sin and death, proving that he actually had the power to take that, to take all of that, and to give us his perfect righteousness.
So that if you trust in Jesus, the gospel says that, that God sees you as beautiful and as perfect and as lovely and as acceptable as Jesus. You're hidden in him. He is your ark of safety. He's your, your place of salvation. He's your robe of righteousness. You're clothed in him. And so we want to make sure we don't miss judgment. We're in a place in time and history, a unique time. A lot of people say, just remember that your cultural values in 100 years will be laughed at, right? There are different times, and we all have like our unique quirks. The unique quirk of our time in history is that judgment, we think, is the most evil thing ever. We can't stomach it. Just recognize that if, if you're real, we all deserve judgment, at least by our own standard. And the voice that I want you to hear this morning is the voice of a God who calls out to you in grace and forgiveness. He says, yeah, I know, you didn't, I know you didn't even live up to your own standard, but I took that for you. That's the good news of the gospel, a God who offers grace. The, the whole long letter in the New Testament of Romans works through this argument chapter by chapter, but just in the first three chapters, it's really clear that there are rebellious people. Chapter one in Romans, it says there are people that just ignore God's voice and we pretend we can't hear him, and we run away from him, and we start worshiping ourselves, and we start worshiping creation, and we start worshiping other things, and our lives just spiral out of control, and we're under judgment. God just gives us what we want. That's what Romans 1 says. The more you want to ignore God's voice, the more God says, okay, you can enjoy life without me and see how that goes. But then in the book of Romans, he turns, he turns on the religious people, and he says, you know what? Religious people, you're just as bad because you're pretending that you're actually keeping God's standards. You're saying that you actually are righteous when you're not. And so both kinds of people are guilty. Whether you're the very careful person that always tries to do everything right, you're also guilty. Or you're the rebellious person that's like, I don't care what God says, I'm gonna follow my own heart. We're all guilty. None of us measure up to the ultimate standard of who God is. But Jesus takes that judgment for us. That's the good news of the gospel. In Matthew 11, he says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy burdened and I will give you rest. Do you hear him speaking to you that way? Do you hear the God saying, come to me, all you who are weary. If you're tired, if you're tired of running, come to me. I will give you rest. Jesus will give you rest. He says in John 10, where he talks about him being the good shepherd, he says, my sheep hear my voice. Can you hear him? In Hebrews, it says, he spoke in many ways and many times through many voices, but in these last days, he's speaking through the voice of his son, Jesus. You hear the voice of Jesus. He says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Today, if you hear his voice, listen, come to him. He's inviting you to walk with him, to trust him. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you have shown us that we can trust you. And I pray as as we try to live this out, that we can live that, that actual joy that you call us to in the book of Ecclesiastes. Life is hard. Life is confusing. It's a puzzle. It's often unfair. And yet, you keep calling us throughout this book to joy, to rejoice in you as the giver of good gifts. So, Father, I, I pray that we would see in this final evaluation that all that we owe to you is to listen to your voice. And when we listen to your voice, you speak to us through Jesus. You call us to know the forgiveness and grace of a God who loves us, a God who delights in us. Help us to come to that place, to trust you, to walk with you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.